Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. Drive your truth deep into our heart, deep into our mind, deep into our very soul, that we simply may worship and praise you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to ask you to describe heaven, what would you say? Who or what would you see? What would be the sounds? What would be the sights? What's heaven really like? I mean, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? And people have been fascinated by that question for thousands of years. What's heaven really like? At the beginning of this century, there were a number of books that came out regarding what heaven is really like. There's one book called Heaven is for Real. It sold more than 10 million copies. It's a story of Colton Burpo, who was then at that time a four-year-old son of a Nebraska pastor. He had emergency surgery, and during that surgery, he slipped to unconsciousness and what we would say is had an out-of-body experience. He talked about being over the surgery room, being able to describe what was happening, He also says that he saw his sister, who is actually a miscarriage, and his parents never talked about that. He also says that he saw his great-grandfather, who had died 30 years earlier, and he gave details that he should never have been able to give. He talked uh, about how the big horse that Jesus would ride and that God was really, really big, and that the Holy Spirit would shoot down, as he says, shoot down power from heaven to help us. So that's one account. Heaven is for real. But there's also another account, the boy who came back from heaven. This was the story of Alex Malarkey. Uh, It sold more than one million copies. He and his father were in a very bad car accident that left Alex a quadriplegic. And so the book is actually written by his father along with Alex, and it's the, the boy who came back from heaven, a true story. The, the story, the account says that soon after the accident, Alex felt an angel take him through the gates of heaven, which he described as being tall, to meet Jesus, and who appears in a hole in heaven. A review of the book stated, Alex's story of meeting God and interacting with angels is inspirational and amazing. And descriptions of this journey seem very real and believable. Another review described how Alex surprised them all when he awoke and told stories of heaven and Jesus and angels and the Miraculous Spiritual Encounters. Tyndale House, the publishing house, promoted the book as a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God. But there's one problem with that. January 13th, 2015, Alex fully and forcefully recanted his entire story. He published an online letter to all the Christian book publishers and bookstores, and he said this, Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, remember he's a quadriplegic, because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. 
I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible to be enough. What's heaven really like? Well, what is our source of authority? How do we determine what heaven is really like? And for those who are visiting today, by the way, we do have sermon notes in case you want to follow along with that. The Bible is the only true, infallible source, God's Word, and in it, it reveals what heaven is like. Now, the biblical accounts, we have four biblical authors who had visions of heaven, not near-death experiences, but visions of heaven. There are two in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel, and two in the New Testament, Paul and John. There were two others, one in the Old Testament, Micaiah, who was in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, and then Stephen in Acts chapter 7. They had visions of heaven, but it's only described very briefly that they had visions of heaven, not really what heaven is like. So we have four biblical authors who had visions of heaven, and three of those authors wrote about their vision of heaven. It is Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John. And what they wrote about is actually very scant compared to many of the books that are written today about people's experience of heaven. Now, Paul did say he had a vision of heaven, but he also said that it was... uh, He says that it would be unlawful to utter it. What you should also know is that everybody who had a vision of heaven, these biblical authors, had an experience of their own fear and shame in the presence of the glory of God. This is very, very different from books that you read regarding the experience of heaven. You know, in, in many of the common books now today, You have people talking about picnics, games, juvenile attractions, familiar faces, odd conversations, and so on. Those do not line up at all with what the biblical authors wrote regarding heaven. Therefore, today, we're going to get a glimpse of heaven. Today and for the next four weeks, we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Revelation, two weeks in Revelation chapter 4 and two in chapter 5. It was written by John. Now, John at the time was on an island called Patmos. It's it's a small island. It's like 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, very small island. They believe it was a Roman penal colony. So he was in prison at the time. And it would have been about 37 miles off the shore of what we know now as Turkey. I also circled Ephesus, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's where the city of Ephesus is found. So on that island, John had several visions of heaven and about the coming judgment of God. Now, he had what is known as 
an apocalypse. An apocalypse is not what we normally think of. Apocalypse simply means an uncovering, a, a revealing, or a revelation. That's what apocalypse means. It means revelation. So, it is the book of the apocalypse. It is the book of revelation. And by the way, that is singular. It is not plural. So, is it John's revelation, or is it something more than that? And if you take a look at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it is actually the revelation from Jesus. And this is what it says, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So, John has a vision directly from Jesus. And so it's the authority of Jesus in which the entire book is given. Now with that in mind, let's go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now come on, admit it. When you think about the gate to heaven... It's the pearly gate, right? And who is standing at the pearly gate? Peter, normally. And there's a lot of jokes about all these tests you have to do to be able to get into heaven. I'm not even going to do the jokes because, in fact, what they do is they diminish our understanding of even the entrance into heaven itself. And it's not these nice pearly... It's this door, and John has trembling and fear and awe at this particular door. Now, when you think about the biblical understanding of the door, who comes to mind? Should be Jesus. Should be no surprise that it is Jesus who shows the door to heaven, for Jesus himself is the door. John chapter 10, starting verse 7, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door to heaven. So even right here, we find the biblical truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him alone. So that's the first. And John says, and behold, when he says behold, that's like, look. Wow, there's the door. And not only that, there's the sound. The sound of Jesus is like the sound of a trumpet. It says this, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. A trumpet a trumpet is not this nice, gentle sound. Anybody play trumpet in band? Yeah? Okay. I played cornet, similar to trumpet. I always felt pity for the French horn sections, which sat right in front of all the trumpet players. It was a loud sound. It was not a very short, simple, sweet sound. It was loud. In the biblical accounts, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find trumpet sounds. 
and they are sounds of great portent or something of great importance. When a trumpet sounded in the Old and New Testament, it made you stand still. We don't have much like that today. From the Midwest, uh, the closest thing I could ever think of would be like a tornado siren. You know, is there a tornado or a monsoon siren here? I don't know. But, but we had those, and they were loud, and they made you stand still because something important was to be announced. Jews of the day, reading the book of Revelation, would have known that the voice of a trumpet meant something important. If you go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, so it came about on the third day when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud came upon the mountain and very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. By the way, if you look from our reading today in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, it's very similar to the throne of God. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. Joel chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And do you remember what happened around Jericho? What did they blow? A trumpet. They blew trumpets for the wall to come tumbling down. So when Jesus says with the voice of a trumpet, Come up here. And by the way, that's a command. You've heard that as kids, right? Come here now. He's telling John, come up here now. And I will show you what must take place after this. You see, this is not gentle. This is not the fairy tale that we have as heaven. This one verse alone displaces the common idea of what we have in heaven. Just as like we've made Jesus into our own imagination where Jesus is just a friend and just wants you to be happy, we've kind of make heaven like that too, just a place where we're all floating on air, where we'll all have new bodies, which we will, where chocolate will have no calories. Want to see over the chocolate lovers there. But the thing about that is when you read the books about heaven and people's accounts of heaven, do you know what you find at the center of those books? You find them. Heaven becomes all about me. It is me-centric, and the focus of heaven is on me. But even in the very beginning of the Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it displaces that notion that heaven is not about you. Heaven is a very, very different focus. So let's continue on here. Chapter, uh, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. You know, Spirit is capitalized. When John says he was in the Spirit, this does not mean that he was in some sort of meditative, ec- ecstatic type trance. It means that he was under the power, the work, the agency of the Holy Spirit. And he was given that vision of Christ, his word, and of heaven. 
And we covered this quite a bit in the past couple of weeks in our series in the Holy Spirit. But the work of the Holy Spirit is always to point to Jesus and his word and his word being truth. This bears repeating. If somebody says they are in the spirit, but they do not confess Christ as Lord and Savior, or they deny the resurrection, or they deny the atonement of the cross, they, are not, they might be in a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. So let's nail this down here, because a lot of people will write books, and they say, I was carried away by the spirit. It says this in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit is of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. So here we have John. There's the door. Trumpet sound of Christ Jesus. Now he is in the spirit. And what does he see? He sees the throne. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. If you go back and read the gospel reading, chapter 4, of Revelation, you will find the word throne is used 14 times. That's a lot of repetition. 11 of those times specifically refer to the throne of God. The other three are the throne the elders are on. So, when you think about throne, what do you think about? It's authority, right? Have any of you had to go into a courtroom before and stand before the judge? I had to once because of a traffic ticket. But even then, I know it's a traffic ticket, right? Uh, it was an accident I was in. And, but there's that, the bench, right? The judge's bench. And you, there's a little bit different sense of coming before the judge's bench, bench isn't there? Now, coming before the throne of God, it speaks to the authority of the throne. A throne resents authority and power. There's only one throne detailed in the Old Testament, and that's from uh, the throne of Solomon. You find that in 1 Kings chapter 10. The description gives the appearance of a throne that would be found in Israel. It's an elevated seat, Six steps up. It's made out of ivory and wood overlaid with gold. And there were statues of lions and similar statues on either side of the step. And although it's not, uh, not mentioned in the Old Testament's description, in that time, a footstool was an indispensable part of the throne. Interesting, this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All of these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. 
So John's vision, his seeing the throne right then and there, shows him that he is in a place of total and absolute authority. Total and absolute authority. What can we understand from this? That we see the throne that it's represented and repeated so many times, it means that God is sovereign over all. There is not one little thing that is outside of his control. Not one little thing. Not one little breath that you take. It's outside of his sovereign control. And this should actually pull us up short, shouldn't it? If you came before that throne with that authority, would you not also fall down on your knees? What's the old joke? You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Tell him your plans. Make God laugh. Yet we come into the throne and we see the throne and everything else melts away. And now John also sees he who sits on the throne. Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and, all, and around the throne was a rainbow that the, had the appearance of an emerald. God is the immediate focal point of all of heaven. He is the focal point. And interestingly enough, John doesn't use the name God or Yahweh. We can only speculate why, because it was such a holy vision, he didn't want to even desecrate by chance the holiness of God. But it's clear from the description, and you can go back also to Ezekiel and you look in Isaiah, that this is God the Father who is sitting on the throne. And we actually don't see his full form. Ezekiel does the best. He says, in a likeness like human form. He's trying to describe it, but even then he's kind of saying this likeness. But what you get more than anything is color and light. Color and light. Jasper is one. Jasper. It's mentioned both in Exodus and Revelation. Interestingly enough, it's found on the high priest, his ephod, ephod, ephod. Um, it's that square breastplate. And you would have one of the precious jewels for each of the tribes of Israel. So there are 12 jewels, Jasper being one of them. Now, in the Old Testament understanding, somewhere along the way, it seemed to be this red gemstone, but in Revelation, it is much more like a diamond. In Revelation 21, verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It seems to speak of this diamond quality of the divine, holy nature of God. So we could extrapolate that perhaps this is about the purity, the holiness, the divinity of God. You also have the second one, which is carnelian. Carnelian is a red color. It's known as a ruby sardis. It was deep red. And perhaps this color, Revelation is full of symbolism. Sometimes it's really hard to pin down. But the color red could symbolize then the wrath of God and his judgment. 
And then you have this, get to it here, then you have this emerald rainbow, which is odd because rainbow is multicolored, right? And God gave a rainbow to show that he would no longer flood the earth, destroy the earth with water. But here you have an emerald rainbow. So we can extrapolate a little bit that this is about his covenant, his grace, and his mercy with his people. There's your description of God the Father, of light. And remember, there's also sound, thunder, lightning flashes. It is about him who sits on the throne, about his sovereignty. So now, given what we just covered, how would you describe heaven? It might be a little bit different than what you started off today. Describing heaven should be different when you go to the biblical account. Most people think of the apocalypse as all of the judgment, the wrath being poured out. But where does it start first? It starts with God who is sovereign over all. No matter how much chaos, no matter how much pain, no matter how much evil, heartbreak, sorrow, we have a sovereign God who loves us. And in his sovereignty, he had sent his son Jesus for us. God from heaven, sitting on the throne, sent his only son for us. If you came into his presence, what would you do? Most likely, you would fall on your knees and do the only thing that you could do, which is to give him worship and praise. And that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to see the worship and praise of the elders and all of the angelic beings around the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, for your power, your majesty, and your sovereignty. Help us to follow Jesus every day to your glory, to your praise. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com.